0: When I think about these messages that I bring to you every week, I always want you to have a better life here, but what I'm most concerned about is that five seconds after you die, you're going to be somewhere forever. You're either going to be in heaven with God, or you're going to be in hell, separated from God. And I need to let you know that within that continuum, there are a couple of things that worry me, or a couple of groups of people that I worry about. (laughs) Of course, having a problem with anxiety is what I do best, but these are legit. The first group of people I worry about are the people, even though they may never articulate it, they feel that they're too good for salvation. And perhaps they will watch us on television or online or be here in one of our services, and they'll, be, they'll feel that there's some sort of spiritual advantage in hearing the things that God has to say, but they never really come to a place of declaring spiritual bankruptcy. If I were to use an old term like saved or being born all over again, they would just never feel that they are at that place where they need that and chances are if I were to talk to them or if you were to talk to them they would say something like well i've always been a christian or i've always believed in god or some version of i am a pretty good person i i meet i meet strangers as i travel oftentimes on an airplane and I like to engage people in conversation about these all-important subjects. I try to keep them from knowing I'm a pastor as long as possible because the conversation turns really funky when they find out I'm a pastor. Very stained glass in So But I am concerned about people, where they, where they go when this life is over. So I try to open up a conversation like, well, what do you think happens to someone when they die? Or what do you think will happen to you? And almost always they'll say, well, I think I'm going to a better place. A better place. And so when I kind of press a little bit kindly and say, well, wh- why do you feel like you're going to go to a better place when you die? 90% of the time at least, the answer is going to come back because I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I, I'm a nice person. I, I try to treat people right. I try to be good to my neighbors. I, I give money to charity and, and this and that. So the answer comes back, I am a, I'm a pretty good person. So I am worried about people that may feel that they really don't ever have that need of being saved or rescued. Um, It could be that you grew up in church and for that reason you feel like, I mean, I've actually had people tell me, well, I'm a pastor's kid. Well, I am too. I promise you that's not necessarily a benefit to getting to heaven because you can learn the jargon more than you know the person. I have friends who are non theists, and, and they like to tell me, you can be good without God. You don't have to have God to be good. We don't say this stuff out loud, but I worry about that. If I'm talking to somebody here today that has some aspect in which you feel like you are good enough that you don't need to be saved, let me be your friend this morning. And let me ask you some questions that you might not have thought about. And and I'm not going to try to answer them. You've got total power here. You can answer these for yourselves. But the wisdom would be for you to wrestle with these for just a few moments. The first question I want to ask you is, are you good enough to get into heaven? Oh, you're good enough to get into New Spring Church. I mean, there's no problem with that. That was easy, wasn't it? You just go fight the traffic jam, find a parking place. You're definitely good enough to be here. You're definitely good enough to get into college. You're good enough to find somebody who will love you and marry you. You're good enough to have a great career. So I'm not questioning any of those things. I, I know you're a good person, but the question is are you good enough to get into heaven? See, heaven is a perfect place. And the second question I would ask you is are you good enough to stand before a perfect, holy God? I wouldn't question for a moment. You're good enough to stand before me. You're probably a way better person than I am. You're, you're good enough to stand before Governor Brownback. You're good enough to stand before anybody in Washington or the president. You're good enough to stand before any human being. There's no question in my mind about that. But are you good enough to stand before a perfect, holy God who knows everything that we've ever thought, everything that we would have done if we could have gotten by with it? And beyond that, a person himself who has never done one thing wrong. Would you be good enough to pass the perfection test? In the 4 o'clock service last night, I started to say, "I, I can't be perfect for 30 minutes, and then I ratcheted that down. I can't be perfect for 10 minutes. But that's perfection is what's required to get into heaven. See, most people have no idea. Religion has so skewed the message of the Bible that most people have no idea what the Bible's message is. I hate religion. Religion is a counterfeit of God's message. It's man's way of coming up with some sort of scheme in which he can find some way to pacify God. All of them are bogus. Uh, People tell me from time to time all religions are the same. Well, no, they're not the same. They're very different. But if you want to get down to them all adding up to the same, I guess technically that's correct. The story of the Bible goes like this. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were created perfect. And they were on a trajectory to go to God's perfect heaven. But they sinned. And when they sinned, they fell and they dropped from that status. And you and I are born to them. And we were born to fallen parents. And so they were spiritually bankrupt. We were born spiritually bankrupt. And in case we want to rip Adam and Eve, you and I have sinned as well. So here's the story of the Bible. God has to find a way to get us back to perfection. Because heaven is a perfect place in which we stand before a perfect God, and the entrance requirement is perfection. When you read the story of the Bible, and if you wonder why Christians get excited this time of year when we celebrate Good Friday and Easter, it's all about God's narrative. It's about God's story to find a way to get us back to perfection. One of my favorite texts in the Bible is Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. I'm such a flawed screw-up. I totally love this scripture. Let me read it to you. It says, to the one who works. Let me define that. It means the person who feels like his works are good enough to get him into heaven, and he depends on that. Now, read it with me. To the one who works, his pay. Now, that means God's remuneration for this person's life when ultimately he stands before God. To the one who insists on his life. God's pay is not credited due to grace, but due to obligation. If I'm talking to somebody here and you say, I just don't know that I really need to be saved. I think I'm good enough on my own. Then you understand that when you stand before God, God is not going to evaluate you based on his grace, but based on how far you come short of perfection. Wow, I'm glad that verse doesn't stop there. What I love so much is verse 5, but to the one who does not work or the one who does not depend on his life or her life, but believes in the one, this is one of my favorite expressions in the Bible, who declares the ungodly righteous. His faith, her faith is credited for righteousness. So you understand that when I stand before God, I don't stand before God and say, God, I deserve to get into your perfect heaven. I come before God as a bankrupt sinner, but Jesus has made a way through his life and death for me to be declared perfect. Let me tell you something about Jesus dying that a lot of people don't understand. When you study the Bible, you will discover that the most marvelous trade in all the history of the humankind happened on that Friday when Jesus died on the cross. After living that perfect life for 33 and a half years that you and I can't live, he ran the table. He took that perfect life and he laid it on a Roman cross, and the way God saw it, he paid the penalty for every sin that you and I have ever committed. That's why the Bible calls it the just for the unjust. You understand that what happened when Jesus died on the cross, it was as if God clicked and dragged my sin and placed it on Jesus, and he clicked and dragged Jesus' righteousness and placed it on me. So that when I stand before God, the total screw-up that I am, and God opens up the book, and there is the name Stephen Mark Hoover, underneath it, it will say, see the life of Jesus Christ. You understand why I hate religion now? Because religion says you can do this on your own and there's no way in the world. I mean, here's the thing. You can put makeup on a corpse, but it's still a corpse. And so many people in religion today, they're spiritual corpses. And they come in and they get some makeup on them that their religion seems to offer. But at the end of the day, there is no resurrection. And there is a second group that I'm worried about. And I'm a lot more worried about this group because of who New Spring is. If you feel that you're too good for God, chances are you wouldn't pick New Spring as a church. We're a church where it's okay not to be okay. And so the likelihood is much greater that you're in the second group. And that is the group that feels that you're too bad for God to forgive. Or you're too far gone, or you're too late, or you've got too little to offer God, or there's something awful that you did in your past that you think about and you think God can't love me. And there are more of us than you and I might think. And I find myself with you. So many times in the years, people have told me the questions that they're going to ask God. And most of the time, they say that in some sort of demanding sense. Well, when I stand before God, I'm going to ask him this. I'm going to tell you something. I only have one question for God when I stand before him. I want to ask him, how could you love me? When I graduated from college back in 78, my senior year I was a pastor in a kind of a rural church in the south metroplex, but when I graduated, I went to an inner city church in Houston. And I used to walk the inner city streets at night talking to people, and the people in the church used to beg me. In those days, most of the people who went to our church had moved out but we were very much in the inner city and I'd walk out at night and I'd hear the pop of gunfire and the people in the church would beg me. They'd say, oh, please, pastor, please don't go out by yourself at night. But I wasn't by myself because God was with me and I, would, I, wouldn't, take, I wouldn't take anything for those two years that I walked the mean streets of Houston and talked to people. See, here's the thing. For those of us who live in suburban America, we don't bring this kind of stuff to the surface, but for the people who are out struggling with life. I know I've told you this story before. I remember talking to a Hispanic man who was drunk and suicidal. He was a Harris County Sheriff's deputy. And I talked to him about Jesus, and I've told you this before, I know, but he told me, he said, God can't save me. He can never forgive me. And I said, why not? He said, because I, as, I, as, I, as I work on my bead, I keep a rubber hose in my car. And he said, I beat my own people. Many undocumented's in Houston. And he said, nobody's ever going to challenge me on it. He said, but I beat my own people. And he said, how could God forgive somebody like me? And stood on the porch talked to a 20-year-old who was a drug dealer. Hair pasty, long, or, or matted and long, and his complexion pasty, and his arms covered with drug, drug tracks. And I told him about Jesus, and he said, God can never forgive me. I'm a drug dealer. And he said, beyond that, I killed a man right where you're standing. <laughs> you know I'm quirky. I said, well, I'll move then. <laughs> and he said, no, it was a drug deal that went bad. And he said, I'm, I killed a man. He said, I got off on self-defense, but it was a drug thing. So he said, God cannot forgive me. I'm happy to tell you that both of those men trusted Christ when I baptized them, along with many others. There's something, see, there's, there's something about living a life that's sort of saccharine like many of us do that we feel the same as those two guys I just talked about. But we don't bring it to the surface except maybe when we wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and everything is quiet. Maybe I'm too far gone. Maybe God cannot save me. But could we hear today the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 9, where Jesus said, I am the door. Anyone who enters in can be saved or will be saved. Do we hear that today? Jesus is the door. Not New Spring Church. I love New Spring Church. For 32 years, it's been one of the great joys of my life, but New Spring can't get you out of Sedgwick County when you die. Jesus is the door. And it's not being a Baptist or a Catholic or a Nazarene or a Buddhist or being part of Islam. Jesus is the door. Now, I think, (laughs) I don't want to try to get into the mind of God, but I think he knew that a lot of us are going to worry about this thing about being too bad. So he put a story in the Bible that helps us. And for the next few moments, I want to talk to you about this story in a message called The Throwaway. The last time we saw Jesus, Pilate, cowardly Pilate, was turning him over to be crucified. Crucifixion is the most awful kind of death. The Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution says that we cannot have cruel and unusual punishment. Crucifixion was designed to be cruel and unusual. In fact, it was to, the purpose of crucifixion was to terrorize people from committing particularly heinous crimes. Jesus was crucified under the Roman government, but no Roman citizen could ever be crucified regardless of how heinous his crime or her crime. And so when Jesus was crucified, he was not crucified alone. The Bible tells us that he was crucified between two thieves. Now, I should let you know that these were not guys that stole cars. Th- these were particularly bad people. These, were th- these, these guys that we're talking about were troublemakers. They were mayhem makers. They upset order. They terrorized. If you were to put this in modern terms today, you would say that they were home invaders. They were serial killers. And so consequently, Jesus was crucified in between these two horrible guys. And you should understand that the Romans didn't usually nail people to crosses. They tied people to crosses. But if they had a hard time catching somebody, if somebody was particularly difficult to apprehend, sometimes the Roman government, in an attempt to basically say, you're never going to get away from us now, they would nail that person to a cross. Frankly, I think that's what happened with these two guys. I think they were hard to catch. They were desperados. And so consequently, when the Romans finally got a hold of them, they said, you're not going to get away from us now. We're not going to tie you to the cross. We're going to nail you to the cross. And I guess that prophet in the middle, we're nailing people today, so let's nail him too. Jesus was put on the cross, and I'm assuming the thieves were put on the cross at about the same time at 9 o'clock in the morning. And for the first hours or so, maybe that these. Three men hung together, these two thieves on the outside. They joined in with the people who were mocking Jesus. In Matthew 27, it says the robbers who were crucified with him heaped insults on him. So both of them were ripping Jesus. Mark tells us they that were crucified with him reproached him. Reproached is a Greek verb in the present tense, which means they just kept on and kept on and kept on and kept on. I mean, here are these guys having to pull their head up against the nails to struggle to breathe. But when they could get a breath, they were cussing Jesus. In fact, one of the thieves in Luke 23 said, Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Basically, it was a question that called for a yes answer. Aren't you the Messiah? Well, then save us. And if you can't save us, what good are you to us? And there are people like that today. That if Jesus can't do what they want him to do, then... But then something changed. I don't know exactly what happened, but... In the heart of one of those thieves, there was a total turnaround. And Luke records it for us in Luke 23, verse 40. The Bible says, but the other criminal rebuked the first criminal. Don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Well, in 44 years of preaching, I would hope that once or twice I preached a good sermon. But I'm telling you, I'm sure I—I'm not sure that I ever climbed to the level of this thief's message who wasn't even saved yet. He had three points to his sermon. Number one, don't you fear God. In other words, our our actions have eternal consequences. Number two, he said, we're getting what we deserve. See, there are a lot of people who won't come to Christ because they feel like they deserve heaven. And this thief looking at himself said, I deserve to be crucified. And then the third thing he said about Jesus is this man has done nothing wrong. But where does this leave this thief? He has made three factual statements. But where does it leave him? If I could take you on a field trip today, I would like to take us all back in time to that Friday morning where Jesus and these two thieves are hanging on the cross. And I would love for you to be able to look into the face of Jesus dying for you. But for a moment, I'd like for you to take your gaze away from Jesus and look at this thief. And what do you see? Here's my question for you. Who wants him? I mean, do you realize that when someone is crucified, that is the government's way of saying, you know what? We don't know what to do with you. There's nothing left for us to do with you. There's no reformation. There's no, um, no way that we can some, find some way to change your life. There's nothing we can do for you. We need to kill you and get through with you. In fact, people who were crucified, their bodies when they were taken off the crosses, they were dumped into a trash heap. So you understand that this man who has just said those three factual statements about himself and about Jesus, nobody wants him. I tried to think about this months ago as I was preparing for this talk, and I thought, you know, somewhere this thief had a mama. I'm sure there were people in his life that tried to talk him into living a better life. I'm sure he had a daddy. I don't know. Maybe the daddy was in his life and he tried to help. On the other hand, he could have been an absentee dad who abused his son. I don't know. I'm sure he had friends. I'm sure law enforcement tried to work with him when he was a kid. But now everybody's given up on him. I mean, when you see him there, he's out of time, he's out of chances, he's out of resources. He is bankrupt. In full objective thought, I want to ask you a question. What can Jesus do for him? I mean, here's the thing. If you're here today and you say, you know what? I thought about my life, and I haven't really, like, followed God, but you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to just tell Jesus, for the rest of my life, I'm going to live for you. And I'm going to take my hands, and I'm going to find some way to use them for God. And I'm going to take my mind, and I'm going to try to find some way to use my mind for God. And I'm going to go to, like, some foreign country, and I'm going to serve people that are underprivileged. And so I'm going to take the rest of my life, and I'm going to use it for God. But what can this thief do? He can't do anything with his hands because they're nailed to a cross. He can't go anywhere for Jesus because his feet are nailed to a cross. And he doesn't have any life to give because he only has hours. So my question for you is, what can Jesus do for him? I want to break one of the first laws of homiletics, which is the science of preaching. I want to jump to another story in the Bible. No preacher should ever do that, but you'll forgive me, won't you? There's a story in the Bible about a man who died. His name was Lazarus. He was a buddy of Jesus. Lazarus and his sisters lived in a little town called Bethany, which was outside of Jerusalem, kind of like Andover's outside the city of Wichita. So whenever Jesus would go to Jerusalem, he would stay with these people. They were were friends. And when Lazarus got sick, and his sisters, Mary and Martha, they fired off a text to Jesus and said, hey, the guy you love is sick. You need to come heal him. But Jesus didn't. In the meantime, Lazarus died. They had the funeral, and they took him out to the grave, and they buried him, and he'd been dead four days when Jesus rolls into town. And Jesus said to Martha, I want you to take me to the grave, and he asks her to roll back the stone. Now, please work with me. What's Martha thinking? She's thinking Jesus wants to view the body. He missed the funeral by four days he wants to view the body. See, here's the problem with being human and with the mess up that religion has made in our lives. We tend to transfer onto God the abilities and the lack of abilities that we have. God shows up in her town, her brother being dead four days, and says, roll back the stone. And here is what she said. And I'm reading it out of the King James because the King James gets this one right. Because there are a lot of other translations that use euphemisms for stink. But King James gets it right. Martha the sister of him that was dead said to him lord by this time he stinketh because he has been dead 4 days. She is basically saying you don't want to view the body it is not a good idea it is embarrassing it's too late. The reason I jump to this story isn't that how we see the thief on the cross it is too late. Maybe if he had been caught earlier, maybe one of the enterprises of this world could have helped him, perhaps education or philosophy or psychology or religion or science or medicine, but it's too late for that. He is dying. He stinketh. But did Lazarus stink when he came out of the grave? No. Because Jesus didn't come to view the body. He came to raise him back to life. Do you understand? That is what is so screwed up about religion. All religion can get you to do is to view the body, but when you know Jesus Christ, he can raise you from death to life. In fact, every time somebody puts her faith or his faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that is what he does. There is a resurrection that takes place, and he brings us back to spiritual life. That is the story of the Bible. Well, for a few moments, I want you to Read the prayer of a throwaway. Here is the thief on the cross who said, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And don't let's not read this answer too quickly. Jesus answered him, "I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise." Are you kidding me? Well, here is a guy that's a serial killer. He says he deserves to be crucified, and yet he reaches out to Jesus and asks Jesus to remember him, and Jesus is saying, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you realize that when Jesus walked into heaven, he had his arm around a thief? Hey, you know what I found interesting as I got prepped for this? Did you know that Pilate, if you were here last week, did you know that Pilate and the thief had the same assessment of Jesus? They both said he was innocent. So why is Pilate in hell, and why is the thief in heaven? Because Pilate never thought to say, remember me. (laughs) This poor guy, this thief. Nobody wanted him. Nobody but Jesus. I don't have time to preach this, but I'm, I'm just blown away by the audacity of his prayer. For all of you who are listening to me today, whether you're in the auditoriums here, you're watching online or watching on television, I plead with you, please don't go to hell. Please don't go to hell. Please don't go to hell because you think you're too good or you think you're too bad. Both of those are Satan's lies. The moment I mention hell, I know someone will say, well, Mark. I don't think hell is fair I just want God to be fair fair doesn't give me any comfort the last thing I need is for God to be fair I understand that I haven't broken the laws of Topeka I haven't broken the sausage-making laws of Washington DC I've broken the laws of heaven someone will say and I've had people tell me this in fact I've had it'll say it'll be something like this Mark, if you're trying to like sell people on Jesus, I don't I think I'd leave that hell part out because I don't think that works for you. Well, first of all, I need to let you know that the person who talked most about hell was Jesus. It wasn't some crazy wild-eyed prophet, it was Jesus. I mean, read read the gospels. He talked about hell much more even than he talked about heaven, so I can't leave it out. I can't. Someone will say, Well, I just don't think you should bring it up. Understand something, please. Jesus is not a politician looking for your boat. He's a rescuer looking for desperate people. Suppose you were on a ship, a cruise ship, and you happen to come across a boat that has sunk in the ocean, and the people who were on that boat are clinging to debris, hanging on for dear life in the icy cold waters, and you got a group together in a, a rowboat or a rescue boat, and you rowed out to where they were, and you begin to please call out to people. And I've understood, and I can, some of you who know the medicine of it, you will understand that sometimes people who are in, in the early stages of hypothermia cannot think clearly. And so you're crying out to those people saying, please get into the boat, because if you don't get in the boat, you're going to experience hypothermia in this water, and then you could drown. Suppose those people said back to you, you know what, we don't think you should talk about hypothermia. If you want to come out and rescue us, would you just please leave off that stuff about hypothermia and drowning? All that stuff is so very negative and because you brought it up we're going to punish you by not getting in your boat do you know what happened those people would drown and you would sadly row back to your ship and go on Jesus is not a politician looking for votes he is not a public figure looking for some way to goose up his likes on his Facebook page He's a rescuer looking for desperate people. There was a time in America when there were preachers that God seemingly raised up to speak to our whole nation. We don't seem to have that today. Probably for one reason, we're sure not the greatest group of preachers of all time, me included. Preachers today seem to be offering more chicken soup than living water. So maybe that's it. Maybe just God can't find one of us to use that way. Or maybe maybe it's just God's way of saying, I'm kind of turning my back on America. But there was a time when there were preachers that God raised up and they sort of came out of nowhere and the whole nation listened to them. I think about D.L. Moody in the 19th century and Billy Sunday in the early part of the 20th century. And then one of my favorite people that probably a lot of you have never heard of, a guy by the name of Peter Marshall who came from Scotland. And in the 40s, he began to pastor New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. It was called the Church of the Presidents, and Senators and Congressmen and Presidents went to his church. But the great thing about Peter Marshall was he was very iconoclastic, and it was a different kind of church. It was like he had New Spring in the 40s. They never could build a building big enough to hear the people who came to hear Peter Marshall, and he eventually became chaplain of the Senate. And his prayers were sermons, which, by the way, I wish that were true today. I was reading this morning about Peter Marshall. He wound up preaching on a December morning at Annapolis. And he just was strangely moved by God that the message that he had prepared was not the message that he should preach. And so he basically just brought a spontaneous message to the naval graduates at Annapolis College about death and about how that, what death is like for the Christian and how that God gives us life after death and how that knowing Christ assures us of everlasting life. It was December the 6th, 1941, and no one in that room knew that at that moment the Japanese were bombing Pearl Harbor and a lot of these young graduates, these young men who were graduating from Annapolis we're going to go out into that war. But Peter Marshall died early in 1949. In that same year, though, God raised up a young evangelist by the name of Billy Graham. A lot of you don't, know, don't remember his name, but it is amazing what Billy Graham was allowed to accomplish. There were many times when his meetings were on network television, and a third of Americans watching television at least were watching Billy Graham several times a year. He became personal pastor to the presidents, to Eisenhower. He led Eisenhower to Christ. In fact, when Eisenhower lay dying, he called for Billy Graham and said, would you please come to my hotel room and tell me one more time how I can know for sure I'm going to heaven. And he ministered to John Kennedy and he ministered to Lyndon Johnson, very much a personal pastor for President Johnson, and Richard Nixon, and and Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter, and Ronald Reagan, and President Bush, and then very much to the Clintons, both Hillary and Bill. I mean, just, it didn't matter what their political party was. Billy Graham spoke to our nation. But there was one guy that I watched, especially in the 80s and 90s, who just, I mean, he, he, he preached to presidents and he preached to all of us, and I still listen to his messages if I get a chance. And then and the last service, several of you told me you'd heard of him. His name is Evie Hill. Dr. E.V. Hill, pastor of Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church in L.A., great, great preacher. In fact, when I just want my soul to be stirred, I'll just pull up one of the old audio sermons of E.V. Hill. Did it yesterday. In fact, when Stephen was still living at the house, sometimes on summer nights we would just go out on the deck and we would listen to E.V. Hill preach the sermon he preached at his wife's funeral. I was listening to E.V. Hill preach one night. He always called his wife Baby. And he said, The other night I was preaching, and Baby called me and said, What'd you preach tonight? She, he said, You can go to hell. <laughs> he said, Baby he said, Come again. And he said, No, that, that, the title of my message is You Can Go to Hell. <laughs> and then he started preaching it. I'll never forget what he said. He said to his audience, You can go to hell if you want to, but you shouldn't. And then he gave three reasons why nobody should go to hell. That's been many years, but I still remember those reasons. He said, first of all, you shouldn't go to hell because you wouldn't like it. It's the second one that's my favorite, though. Never thought of it before he preached it. He said, you shouldn't go to hell because you haven't been invited to go. And he said, you shouldn't go someplace where you haven't been invited He said, God only invites you to go to heaven. And then thirdly, he said, you shouldn't go to hell because Jesus has already paid the way for you to go to heaven and have everlasting life. Oh, I wish we had Dr. Hill preaching that today. Oh, I know how it is. Somebody's watching me today and you're saying, Mark, don't you understand you're living in 21st century America? And most people are not going to listen to that stuff. That's Jesus saving, dying on the cross, and and me needing salvation. Don't you understand most people are not going to listen to that? Yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. I was born at night, but not last night. And it could be that someone's listening and saying, hey, you know what? Even if what you said is true about Jesus, I mean, there's all these people around the cross and it seems like the only person who went with him was this thief on the cross. And don't you even understand that when Jesus was dying, all those people saw him, most of those people went to hell. And so that person might say, You you brought this message to us today. You could have, you could have brought us some chicken soup for the soul, which is the book's fine in its place. But you just like, you could have told us something that would have made us feel better and we could have had a better life, but I'm worried about where you go when you lead this life. But somebody could say, Don't you understand you're not making any difference? One of my favorite stories, I heard when I was a kid. A little boy is walking along the beach. And the ocean had churned up a whole bunch of starfish and dumped them on the beach, thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of them. As this kid walked down the beach, he'd stoop down and pick up a starfish and fling it back into the water. And as he walked, he would do it, but of course, obviously, there were still so many thousands of starfish there. And a crusty old cynical guy about my age saw this kid and watched him. And after a while, he said, Kid, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm throwing these starfish back into the water. Why are you doing that? Well, because they're going to die. He said, kid, look up and down this beach. There's thousands and thousands of starfish. Which He said, even if you could throw a few of them in the water, don't you understand what you're doing ain't going to make any difference? About that time the kid bent over and picked up a starfish and flung it out into the water, and he said, made a difference to that one. I know most people are not going to listen to this message. But it can make a difference to you. It can make all the difference to you. If you're here today and you're not sure that you fully place your trust in Jesus Christ, I pray that happens. Would you just bow your head with me, please, for a moment? I want to pray a prayer. Father, I pray for this audience today that what happens in these next few minutes will be that life-changing moment where somebody here will experience everlasting life and know for sure, beyond a doubt. In Jesus' name I pray.
1: Amen. Hey, and with your heads bowed and eyes closed just for one more second today. You know, before you leave New Spring today, my name's Mike, and I just want to talk to you for just a moment. We would love to give you the opportunity to talk to God today and to begin a relationship with Jesus. You know, you were created to have a relationship with God, and God sent his son Jesus to this earth to die on a cross. And all the work has been done for you and I to know who God is and to have him in our life. And so today, this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to just word a prayer. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just wanna invite you, if you're here today and you say, you know what, Mike, Newspring, I've never made that decision. I've never said yes to Jesus in my life. I wanna give you a chance to do that right now. I'm gonna say this prayer and I wanna invite you to say it with me. You don't have to say it out loud. These aren't magic words. It's just a few simple words that you can say in your heart as you talk to a wonderful God who loved you and sent his son to die for you. Here we go. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I can't fix it on my own. And I ask for your help. I believe that Jesus came and died on a cross and rose again for my sin. And I ask that you will save me from the penalty of death. Make a place for me in heaven when I die. I invite you into my life today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you're here and you just said that prayer with me, first of all, we're just so excited for you. Uh, As you leave today, you'll see some info centers all around the lobbies and we have a packet that we'd love to give you. There's some wonderful resources in here. We'd love to share that with you. All you have to do is walk up to the uh, info center and let them know that you said that prayer today and they'll give that to you. Hey, also before you leave today, Easter is next weekend. We couldn't be more excited. And so we wanna invite you as you leave today, pick up some of these little mini invites and take them with you. Invite your friends, invite your family. Have a wonderful weekend. What's left of it? We'll see you next week.